Jesus spoke in parables, and we're focusing on the parable of the soils. Now, if you're following me on the screen, which I hope you'll do, <laughs> I have a picture here for you to show you. It's a fellow uh, that I grew up with uh, when I was young. I grew up with him from a distance, but this guy was very, very handy. First of all, in working on cars, and that I liked a lot. He had a 32 Roadster with a 48 Ford flathead with Offenhauser heads. That doesn't mean anything to any of you, does it? It was cool. Now, we get my picture up here. I'll show you the next piece of, of uh, metal work that this fellow did. In my, near my parents' home between Olympia and Shelton, there is a, a, a pasture and they have this huge uh, bull uh, made out of metal in, in the pasture. And, and then they have uh, a cow and a calf and it just sits out there in the middle of the pasture. But that was not the end of his artwork. He years later created this other piece, which I'm hoping you'll see in a minute, which is this huge pig. And, and uh, so uh, my picture, if, it, if it's available, uh, it's coming. I can see it now. Uh, number that, that's it. Now, folks, it's not a great picture. It's a picture of a picture. But you can see that that's a, that's a mighty good-sized pig. Would you not all agree with me? That is one healthy hog. What you don't see is what is written on the side of this pig that was placed in one of the most visible places in the town where I grew up. And it said, County Tax Assessor. <laughs> Made that connection, didn't you? Between a pig and a tax collector. It's a little bit of logic that has to go there. Now, if you look at, at, the, uh, at the next picture, you'll see a political cartoon, I hope. And, uh, and this cartoon I, I plucked off of the internet uh, because uh, it, hopefully it's, it's not so political that anybody gets all worked up about it when I, when I put it on the screen. In order to understand this political cartoon, you have to, you have to see a donkey right there running the, the, the demolition crane, the California wrecking crew, businesses in shambles, uh, and the wrecking ball is taxes, which is obviously destroying businesses. And the one last business surviving is online sales, and they're after that one. So you have to put all of that stuff together before it makes sense. R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says that a parable is like a political cartoon. And that is you have to come to it with a certain level of understanding a certain set of givens before that thing makes any sense. And so, you know, it's sort of like some of the inside jokes uh, techies would make where they're talking about computers or, or programs or whatever. If you're not on the inside, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Parables are sort of like that. But the parable we come to in Mark chapter 4 is, is, uh, is critical to us because our Lord Jesus says that failing to understand this parable is to fail to understand why Jesus spoke in parables. And this was a, a, a something now that takes place and lasts over a significant period of time. And I think part of our problem is that it sounds so simple 
that we think we have it pretty well under control and, uh, and therefore we may not come to the depths uh, that we should. But remember, and it says, not just that Jesus said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, but he was saying to them. So apparently that expression is said over and over, which says we ought to listen very carefully to what this uh, parable is about. So here are the questions I'd like to deal with. What's the purpose of this parable with reference to the crowds? Why does he tell the crowd this parable? And then why does he tell the parable and explain it to the disciples slash Apostles, Remember, Mark chapter 3, he's already designated them to be apostles, not just disciples. That would be the 12. And then thirdly, how is this parable the key to understanding all the parables? And I take that to mean Jesus' use of speaking only in parables. And what is the fruit that is uh, described or that is in, included in this whole mention of fruitfulness or the lack of it. And then finally, what does that parable say to us? So let me make some observations, can I? Um, just to sort of lay the groundwork for, for this text. I think you all know it's in every one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John. Um, and in each case, there is a very large crowd that is gathered that is the occasion for this. It's not the first teaching that anybody in that crowd has heard. And the word again is, I think, underscoring the fact that Jesus has been speaking to them. He is now speaking to them again. So it's not his first pass with this crowd, but it's rather a follow-up um, conversation with them. I believe that the content of our Lord's teaching here, while it's described in Mark as having taken place in one day, I believe the content is consistent with what he was teaching in his itinerant ministry. In other words, when you look, for instance, at our Lord's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that that happens at a particular place and a particular time. But Jesus went about from place to place teaching. And I think the essence of that teaching that we find in Matthew 5 through 7 is going to be repeated in other places. In fact, when you look at Luke's account, his parallel account of the the story of the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, it very clearly is saying this in reference to Jesus going about, and this is what he said So what Jesus says here at this point in time by the Sea of Galilee on this particular day is what he was saying as he went from place to place as well. So it's his consistent teaching on the subject, I think, in Galilee. This is the point. This is the transition point at which time Jesus converts his teaching method to teaching in parables, and it is very clear in the scriptures. He did not teach them anything if he did not teach in parables. My sense is that that continues for a substantial period of time. Now, in the Gospel of John, we see the emphasis being Jesus going up to Jerusalem and sort of waging an attack, like like John chapter 2, where he cleanses the temple. And in John chapter 5 and, and so on, you see him making these trips to Jerusalem, stirring up the pot 
and, and creating the anger and animosity, and then he retreats. But in the synoptic gospels, they focus more on the Galilean ministry of our Lord. I actually believe that going to the parabolic method is Jesus' form of retreat, where he's not physically departing, but he's putting distance, as it were, between he and, uh, and his audience. There is some variation. When you look at, at these three accounts, you will notice some variation in the, in the way in which the author presents his material. That is to be expected. If it were just boilerplate, then you would wonder why it was identical. Um, but it also says to me that it's those things that, the, that each of those parables says in common that must be the point that we're to get. Even though each author has his unique emphasis, the point would be those things that are emphasized by all. Mark places the emphasis on the last soil. Now, when I, I told you, my first sermon was like 40-some years ago at Believer's Chapel, and I preached on the parable of the soils, and I went to great length. I won't put you through it. I went through great length to demonstrate that Jesus sets the fourth soil apart from all the others. If you look carefully at a meticulous translation, like the New American Standard, it will, in the giving of the uh, parable, other seed, other seed, the word seed is supplied, but it is, it is helping us understand the word other. And then verse 8, other seeds, sets it apart, changes the word, and that little difference then is carried into the interpretation our Lord gives. These are the ones, these are the ones, these are the ones, those are the ones. That little change is setting the fourth soil apart from the other three. The question is, what is the reason for that distinction? What is the significance of that distinction? And frankly, my opinion on the answer to that has uh, changed a bit. And you'll see that in point G. The emphasis is on hearing and on fruitfulness. Over and over, you see those uh, played out. And it is, of course, a key, the key to our understanding the parabolic method of our Lord. This is the only parable in which the reader is given the interpretation. Uh, and obviously, so far as we know, the, 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 those who were on the outside didn't say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. What does that mean? It was his disciples who would ask Jesus privately what this meant. And that prompted the explanation that the reader is given, the explanation of our Lord to his disciples. And notice, when I say disciples, I'm speaking of more than the 12. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, his followers along with the 12. Now, we know from Luke chapter 8 that those followers included that group of women who came along and supported Jesus out of their means. So there was a larger group of disciples that were a part of that party. It was from that group that Jesus selected the 12. And in Mark chapter 3, he appointed those 12 to be apostles. But I'm saying it's, it's a larger group than just 12, but it is the inner circle, so to speak, of our Lord, those who, who follow him, uh, as opposed to the masses uh, who really do not. 
No interpretation was given to the crowds, nor did they ask for one, at least, nor did are we told that they did uh, in any of the Gospels. You see very clearly in this text divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Do you not? I mean, I, I think some people feel like you have to hide one from the other because it creates some kind of tension. I mean, he says, I speak in parables so they won't understand and they won't repent and they won't be forgiven. Hey, folks, I don't know what you call that. I call that sovereignty. But he also says, let him who has ears, let him hear. It's an exhortation to listen to what he's doing. That's responsibility. They're both here in the same text. That must mean that we're not supposed to embrace one without the other. Um, And so there it is, staring us in the eyes if we're looking. Look at the progressive improvement in the soils. Do you see this? In the first soil, there's no response at all. In the second soil, there's a quick and joyful response. But when the heat comes and the depth or the lack of depth in the soil or lack of moisture in the soil comes along, the plant dies, right? Dead plant. Dead plants don't bear fruit. In the third plant, the plant is, it, it, it's germinated, it grows up, but it grows up uh, surrounded by thistles and thorns and those things which, which deprive it of nutrition, the plant survives. It just doesn't produce fruit. It's the fourth soil where the plant not only is germinated, not only grows up, but it endures to fruitfulness. So each case is a slight improvement, but it's obviously the last one that is really critical. And notice, in my mind, the big contrast is between that which is fruitful and that which is unfruitful. Soil four, fruitful, various degrees. Soils one, two, and three, unfruitful. That becomes, I think, a very important element for us to keep in mind. Now, we need to come to this text with a sort of broader view of what the Scripture says about fruitfulness or the lack of it. When you, I'm not going to go to 2 Kings 19, but it's an interesting text. But just look at Psalm 1-3. Remember, this is the man, the righteous man who dwells on the word of God. And it says, and he bears fruit in its season. He's drawing upon the resources God has given. Psalm 92-14 talks about those who are still bearing fruit in their old age. Must be something important to be doing. But it's the Isaiah 5 text that's really critical. And I say that because, my friend, Jesus explains his use of parables by turning to Isaiah chapter 6. When you come to Isaiah chapter 5, that is an explanation of where Israel is at, and it isn't a good place. The previous chapters have spoken about Israel's persistent sin, and in spite of God's warning and rebuke from the prophets, They have resisted and rejected that. And so chapter 5 is speaking now of Israel as his beloved vineyard. And this vineyard is on a hill. It's gotten all of the attention. It's gotten all of the benefits that a vineyard ought to get. He could do no more for his vineyard. But the problem is no fruit, right? 
And it's because of that that the vineyard is going to head for the judgment that's coming. And that's what Isaiah chapter 6 will deal with in part, but certainly the rest of Isaiah. Here's a critical text I left out. Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Matthew chapter 3, you remember John the Baptist has been preaching. People have been coming to him to be baptized. The message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When the scribes and the Pharisees came to be baptized, John the Baptist said, "Uh uh-uh, I am not baptizing you. Bring forth fruit fitting for repentance. In other words, there was no fruit in their lives that gave any evidence of repentance, and therefore he refused to baptize them. Fruit was important to John the Baptist, right? Um, As it will be to our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 25. You remember that's the the text where those uh, people are given various talents to invest, and what the master says is, At least you should have put the money in the bank. If you bury it in the ground, folks, what you dig up is exactly what you put in. Is that not right? Plus a little rust and whatever else. But you don't gain. He said, at least you should have put it in the bank. In other words, God expects produce. He expects increase, or if you want to use our word, he expects fruit from uh, what he has placed in our hands and in our lives. Uh, Mark chapter 11. There's the story you see in other synoptics where Jesus sees this fig tree and the fig tree has leaves and all of the indications that there might be fruit on it and there wasn't. He curses the fruitless fig tree because it has no fruit. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, is the story of the fig tree, and the owner of this fig tree is talking with the caretakers of this thing, and he's basically saying, look, we've planted this thing, we've watered it, we've fertilized it, and we haven't gotten any fruit. And they finally conclude they're going to give this thing one more year. If it doesn't bear fruit, they're going to cut it down. Fruitfulness is an important thing. And then if you think about John chapter 15, uh, the whole text on abiding in him, abiding in him is necessary in order to bear fruit. So that is something God expects of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. And I added a text that I should have put in there, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is expected in the lives of the believer. Okay, now let's see if my... Let's, ah, it's a beautiful shot, isn't it? That is the Sea of Galilee, and that is one of the places, maybe the most uh, likely place, where it is proposed that Jesus was doing his, his teaching, and you could see how it would be possible for a large crowd of people to be sort of sitting in that area. And, and actually, when we were there, you, they, they did this little experiment where somebody down by the seashore uh, called up and spoke up, and you could hear uh, clear up on the top. It was sort of a natural sound uh, place where people could hear. That may be the setting. So in your mind, think about here, beside the Sea of Galilee, 
as it were, the waters lapping upon the shore. You hear it against the, the boat. Probably one of uh, e- either James and John's boat or, or Peter and Andrew's boat, but one of the boats has been, has been utilized and is anchored off the shore, so Jesus is distant somewhat from his, his audience, and that is where uh, this parable telling uh, is uh, taking place. We really need a little broader scene than that, however, if we're to really understand what's taking place here. So let's go back in, in, our, in our minds and recognize that when we are in Mark chapter 4, we are not at the beginning of the story and we are not at the end of the story. We're in the middle of the story. So what's the beginning? The beginning in Matthew and Mark is the, uh, is the, the coming of John the Baptist and his ministry. And his message was... Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Is that not right? It was a baptism for the remission of sins. Or he spoke of the Lord Jesus who would come and who would uh, deal with the sins of men, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was the message of John the Baptist. When Jesus began his public ministry, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Same message as John. When in Mark chapter 2, the man is lowered down through the roof, our Lord Jesus says, first and foremost to him, your sins are forgiven. Now what I'm trying to get at is, Jesus coming and his ministry is about forgiving sins through faith in his work on the cross of Calvary. Is that not what it's about? It's about Christ's work, about men's repentance and faith, and the resulting salvation that comes. Now, when you come to our text, you see a whole lot of people gathered there, but why are they there? Why are they there, and what are they interested in? It is very clear, is it not? Go back in your minds to Mark chapter 2. Jesus uh, has called uh, some of his uh, disciples, four of them. He is. Uh, he comes to the the house, the home of Peter's uh, mother-in-law, where, or, or where she is staying, and he heals her. And then all the crowds come, remember, and they want healing and so on. And Jesus heals all of these different maladies. And and then Jesus, the next morning, goes out by himself to pray, and his disciples are saying, "Hey, Jesus, all the crowds are waiting for you." And he said. It's not really about healing. It's not the reason I've come. I've come to preach the gospel to these people. So for Jesus, it wasn't just a mass healing and miracle ministry. It was a ministry that proclaimed the forgiveness of sins that would come through him and the shedding of of his blood. This group, now again, we're in Galilee. This group we see later on, and now I'm, I'm transferring you over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 begins by telling us that a large crowd has followed our Lord, and what are they looking for? Well, not yet. That's coming. That's coming. Next, they're looking for miracles. They're looking for miracles. Jesus is the miracle man, and that's why they're there. Uh, that's their primary reason. Now, Jesus has compassion on their hunger. 
And so he feeds the 5,000, and then the crowds are going to say, give us this bread forevermore. Man, they want the great society, don't they? They want grub every day. That's what it's about. Two cars in every garage, a chicken in every pot. That's life for them. And that's when Jesus says, and by the way, that's where they try to make Jesus their king by force. That's the kind of king they're interested in. And Jesus speaks to them about being the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And what happened? They all left but the disciples. I should say all these disciples left but the intimate disciples of our Lord Jesus. And they said, who else has the words of life? It's you. We don't understand what's going on, but we're with you. So there is that later departure. That's when Jesus finally draws this line and this Galilean crowd is gone. But we're in the middle of that where they're seeking for a miracle, but he's not ready yet to draw that line in the sand. And so he speaks to them in parables because of their, of their spiritual state that they are in. The meaning of the text for the crowds. Well, think about who's in the crowd. And we know that from, from the previous text and from the parallel accounts that we find in the synoptics. The crowd is filled with sign seekers. Give us a sign. Show us a sign. Or in other words, give us another miracle. We really like those. Give us a sign. And then there's the self-servers. They want a healing or a free meal. They want Jesus to meet their, I'm sorry about this, any psychological friends out there, felt needs. They really want that. Uh, rather than their true need of forgiveness of sins. There were those who wanted political revolution. One of them was among them, Simon the Zealot. <laughs> Peter wasn't far behind. Hey, Lord, I got this sword right here. You think when he pulls that sword and whacks off Malchus's ear, he's not ready to do battle? Throw off these Romans and set up the kingdom. That's what they were about. That's why they liked Barabbas better than Jesus, because that's what Barabbas was about to do in his mind. And then you had those who were looking for grounds to accuse Jesus. You know, every crowd had those scribes and Pharisees who were weighing everything, looking for an occasion to say, see, Jesus is wrong. He's not the guy to follow. So what I'm saying to you is this crowd, it's not a really flattering picture, is it? Of who they are and what they're after. They're all after their own purposes. And these are people who have been hearing Jesus before this, this is just another day in this saga of proclaiming the gospel that goes all the way back to John the Baptist and now comes up to him. They've heard a lot. But the reality is they don't want to hear too much about anything other than the goodies that Jesus, they think, is obliged to bring. So what's the message to these folks? I think the message is it's still about sin and repentance and forgiveness. It's not about bread. It's not about healings. It's about sin and righteousness and forgiveness. The goal of that is fruitfulness. I'm going to come back and lean on this pretty hard. But the goal is fruitfulness. 
It is not just being saved from hell's damnation, which is very real. The goal is fruitfulness. And so the issue in this whole text is whether you are fruitful or not fruitful. We'll come back to that. Many will fall short. When you see this, uh, you may not know exactly what the percentages are, but three out of four soils aren't going to make it to fruitfulness. So a lot of people in that crowd, it seems like they ought to at least get the point, wow, Jesus is saying this is a smaller group of people in the end than we may think. And I'm gonna, I scratched out D because of my friend Paul Johannan. It's all your fault, Paul. I blame it on you. He was counting the money back there and he said, as I was getting ready and I was working through my notes, I figured it out. It's all about the heart. And that's even better than what I said. It is about the heart. You see, the difference between all those four groups is the soil, is it not? Hard soil, shallow soil, crowded soil, fruitful soil. It's all about the soil. And the soil represents the heart. So the real key to this is the heart. And if you don't buy that, you need to think ahead to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about what real purity is about. Remember, they're talking about washing hands and whatever. And Jesus says, you guys got it all wrong. The key to holiness is in the heart. It's what comes out of a man that, that's defiling because of the heart's defiled. It isn't what food goes into him. It's what comes out because the defilement is in the heart. Or from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we read, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the springs of life. It's really about the heart when you come to the heart of the matter. The meaning of the text for the disciples. Now we're talking more broadly than this large group of people who in essence don't get it. Even the message for them. Now I want to say to you again what I said before. When you look later on in the message we'll do next week, Jesus says nothing is hidden but what it is going to be revealed. There will be a time when the concealment is over and the gospel is going to be clearly laid before these people at Pentecost and beyond and they have a choice to make. But for now, the truth is concealed because of where they are. So the disciples are the inner circle of our Lord. What is our Lord telling them? Well, I think you've got to say one thing is he's saying to them crowds are not the measure of success. You know, those disciples, think about it. These guys, these are the ones who are sitting around saying, who gets to sit on Jesus' right hand and his left, you know, and we're going to all have 12 thrones. Each one of us is going to sit on one. And they got visions of glory, their glory, in their minds. And Jesus says, uh, don't get too whooped up about this crowd because these numbers are not indicative of success or the goal of what our Lord's ministry is really about. Many will respond positively, but they won't endure to fruitfulness. And you think about that. Look at the large groups of crowds who are following Jesus. They are in this, they think. But the hard times haven't come yet. And Jesus is saying when they do... These guys will fall away, and John 6 is just one illustration of that. 
He's also saying to his disciples who are yet to be sent out. They've been commissioned in chapter 3 as apostles. They are going to be sent out and they are going to raise the dead. They are going to preach the gospel. They're going to heal the sick and cast out demons. They're going to do what Jesus is doing. And they're going to find their crowds too. And Jesus is saying to them, be careful, guys. Be careful. Large crowds are not an indication of the success of the kingdom. Obedience to our Lord's teaching is a prerequisite for further revelation. Remember what Jesus says? Be careful what you hear, because the one who has will receive more. And the one who doesn't have, who hasn't made that a part of himself, who hasn't appropriated that, even what he has will be taken away. You see that in Matthew 25, the guy who didn't make use of the of that which God had made him a steward. God says, take it away and give it to the others. The ones who were fruitful, they were given more. So obedience to the truth is the key to learning more truth. And what we see in the crowd is they heard the truth, but they didn't act upon the truth. They changed the truth. They listened to the things they thought they wanted to hear, but they didn't really embrace the truth. And therefore, the Lord finally says, you've had long enough to interact, to embrace this truth and to follow it, and you haven't. And so therefore, I'm not going to keep on putting forth, if I may say it in these terms, my pearls before swine. And so he conceals the truth from them because they're at a stopping point. Until they've dealt with this, they can't really move on in Christian living and knowledge. Parables, therefore, conceal the truth from those who have failed to act upon what they know. And it seems to me that fits exactly with Isaiah 5 and 6. Here's another one. Intimacy with Jesus is the key to understanding those things that are puzzling to us. Folks, commentaries are great. Preachers, they're okay, some of them. But the bottom line is the mysteries of Scripture... I believe, are designed to bring us to Jesus. Jesus tells these stories and the disciples don't understand. What do they do? They draw near to Jesus. Isn't he the one who tells them what it is? So ultimately, it's these mysteries that draw us to him in dependence upon him and say, Lord, I want to know this. Those who were intimate with Christ were those who got the inside scoop. And those who weren't, didn't. Applying the truth is the key to more truth. So, understanding Jesus' use of parables as a method. Jesus taught in order for men to believe and obey. Failure to do that over a prolonged period of time brought about the use of parables because they were not to get more of the story at that time moment in time. They fail to act upon what they know. And here's where I really want to lean. The parables have a twofold purpose. Isn't that interesting? God is a multitasker. We, I have trouble doing one thing at one time and doing it right. But God is a multitasker. And so parables on the one hand serve to conceal the truth from those who have not acted upon it. And on the other hand, it serves to stimulate those 
who are intimate with Him, who love Him and want to understand. And it provokes them to pursue Him, to ask what's going on, and to search for the answer. So it's a twofold goal, a twofold purpose, I believe, that is involved in this. Okay. Now the meaning of the text for us. And, and I would say, as I've said before, and, and Paul prompted me on, the key to this whole thing is our heart. The key to this is our heart. Jesus is saying the condition of men's heart determines their response to the truth. Now, having said that, there's the sovereign side. We're not denying that. But here where Jesus is urging people to consider what he's saying and to listen carefully, he's not here emphasizing his sovereignty. You want sovereignty? Go to John. He'll say, no one comes to me except the Father draws him. They're both true, folks. But here he is calling on men to listen responsively as well as responsibly. The key is the heart. It governs what we hear. You ever think about that? What we want to hear is what we do hear. You think about that as a parent with your kids. You know, they want to hear something. Man, they're going to hear it no matter how much you said it the other way. They're going to hear what they want to hear. So I, I point out the, da- the danger of selective hearing. Every one of us has the temptation to come to God's word and extract from it the promise that God's going to do for us what we really want. The reality is, what God wants to do is often painful, and it involves suffering and sacrifice. Isn't that what the second and third soil are about? Second soil is about adversity. The third soil is about temptation. If you want to follow Jesus, the fourth soil doesn't skip two and three, folks. The fourth soil endures past two and three. Don't think the fourth soil didn't have adversity. And don't think it doesn't have temptation. It does. But it gets past that. The danger of selective hearing. Every one of us, when we come to a sermon, we'll latch on things and we'll say, Oh, man, does my husband need that? Does my wife need that? Does my neighbor need this? And then we latch on something that we really want. And that's what we see God has for us. We may be hearing only what we wish to hear. By the way, I put this in. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Now, I know it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. I got that order down right. But here, notice the opposition. Isn't that what it says? Devil picks up the seed. The flesh doesn't want to suffer. And the world offers us all of its goodies. Here it is. The difficulties that Christians face... uh, and others will face uh, in their lives that relates to their obedience. So we must maintain a clear view of what the gospel is all about. Here's what I'm saying. These people listened to Jesus, who didn't have any flaws in his communicative skills, who didn't slip up on the use of a word, whatever. He was clear as a bell. And yet these people still heard a certain message that was a distorted message. It was what they wanted. Now, I go back to this because they wanted Jesus the miracle man. But back in in Mark chapter 2, Jesus said, I didn't come here to work wonders and do all kinds of miracles and healings. I came here to preach the gospel to lost sinners so they'd be saved. 
And the reason I'm, I'm jumping all over this is because one of the difficulties in, in, in our taking the gospel to other people is we cannot overlook their needs. You can't say to somebody who's starving, I want to give you the four spiritual laws. But we never, never can forget that giving them a piece of bread or a roof over their heads is what it's all about. It's not. What it's all about is sinners coming to faith. And so just like these people wanted to twist the, the, the message of Jesus to fit their preferences, we need to be watching because other people are going to want us to torque the gospel in a way that makes it easy and let the sin and the righteousness and all that stuff just kind of go by the wayside. That is our message. And we better not be crowd pleasers because the crowd is often listening for other things. The crowd needs to hear what it's really all about. So obedience is the step, the prerequisite for further revelation. I'm going to drop down to number six. Fruitfulness is the goal of the gospel, not merely escaping judgment. Now, some of you are probably going to get off my train right here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Forty years ago, when I preached this text, I preached it that the fourth soil was saved. That that's what, that's what Mark was trying to prove is the fourth soil was set apart because they're saved and the other three are not. There is great debate amongst scholars, God bless them, whoever they are, about whether or not a particular category. Everybody agrees, soil one's out, okay? Everybody's got that one down. Two and three, no, that's a little discussion point amongst the scholars. Nobody can say dogmatically, I think, this one's, this soil is saved and those other soils aren't. But I'll tell you what, nobody disagrees about who's fruitful and who's not. Is that not right? Read the text, folks. It's clear. One, two, and three aren't fruitful. Four is. That's what's clear. So the real issue here is fruitfulness or unfruitfulness. And what I'm saying is sometimes you and I are selective in our hearing in that we'd like to set the fruitfulness thing aside and let's talk about salvation. And let's talk about who's eternally secure. Now, please understand me. I am not opposed to or contradicting the doctrine of eternal security. It's a fundamental of the faith. I'm all there, folks. But there is a time when we need to say, that isn't the subject. It would be so easy to preach a message here and say, that fourth soil, those are the ones, whoever is saved, they're saved forever, they're all going to heaven, everybody else is going to hell. Hey, it's true. But I don't think that's what you need to hear, and it's not what I need to hear. The question God has for me is, hey, Buster, how fruitful are you? Oh, I know you're going to heaven, but the goal of salvation is fruit-bearing. Not saying, I made a decision, it's all over, all i got to do is warm this pew a few more years, and I'm out of here. That is not what the gospel is about. It's about bearing fruit. And Jesus is saying, there are a whole lot of people who aren't going to bear fruit because they don't want to suffer. And, and by the way, I have to say, 
When we preach the gospel, we better be careful that we don't promise people things or promise them there won't be things that are coming. We better preach the gospel in a way that says, you know what? It's tough. It's going to take endurance and perseverance. There are going to be temptations and trials, all of that. Those things must come along. We need to understand God expects us to sign on for the long term having a heart for him that leads to endurance and perseverance and therefore to fruitfulness. And therefore, the real question for us who are saved is not, are we saved? Well, yes, we are. And we walk out the door. The question is, for those who are saved, are we fruitful? And if we are not, my friend, then this parable has some strong things to say to us that are not flattering. And we'd better think about our heart. That's what Mark 7 is going to do. Look at your hearts. That's the key. It's not all about us. It's about the glory of God. Isn't that right? And by the way, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is not just winning souls. It is that. For Isaiah, it was proclaiming the gospel when people didn't come to faith. But it's living a life of fruitfulness. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. A life of obedience. A life of giving glory and praise to God. That's the fruit that God wants. Is men glorifying Him. And just coming to faith and now coasting along in our lives, waiting for heaven, is not the plan. And so Jesus is saying to every one of us, I think... We better take a long, hard look at whether or not we are bearing fruit for him. Now, having said that, folks, there is a question that comes before it, and that is unsaved people don't bear fruit. And they're not expected to, or I should say they don't bear the right kind of fruit. If you're here this morning, could be that someone's here who's never trusted in Jesus Christ for their Savior. Uh, as their savior. It could be that you think your righteousness and your fruit is good enough. It isn't. It isn't. And so the message to you is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sinners don't glorify God by their sin. And the solution to that is to trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. But for all of us who are believers, the real question is, Are we bearing fruit? And this parable puts that question right in front of us. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would work in our hearts, reveal to us uh, those things which are unfruitful. May we bring glory to you, and may that be our great joy in life. Help us, Father, work on our hearts, because it is you who changes hearts. Work in our hearts to make us those who delight to follow you. In Jesus' name.